This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for episode 38 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Before we get into the episode, don't forget to check out our website, firedog.us. On the site, you'll find every new podcast episode along with articles from people across the fire service. You'll also be able to access the site from a government network computer, which is great and allows you an opportunity to listen as a group while you're on duty at the firehouse. So make sure to go check out the site, save it to your favorites. And if you want to write an article to be featured on the site, click contribute at the top of the page. You can also click contribute at the top of the page if you'd like to be a guest on the show. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or somewhere else. Our guest today has spent over 30 years in the fire service and recently retired as a battalion chief from the Atlanta Fire Department in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a chief elder for the Georgia Smoke Diver Program, a member of the Fire Department Instructors Conference Executive Board, and an advisory board member for Underwriters Laboratory Firefighter Safety Research Institute. It is my pleasure to welcome Chief David Rhodes. Well, again, welcome, Chief. It's a pleasure having you on. Thanks for agreeing to come on and talk with us. So we've decided to try something new during this episode uh, and focus primarily on leadership dilemmas. We got some leadership questions for you to dissect. We'll go back and forth a little bit on that. And I'd like to touch, of course, on your time and experience with the smoke divers. Uh, I'm, I'm personally pretty interested in that. So before we get into everything, could you give us an overview of who you are? Uh, where you worked, a brief synopsis of your fire career up to this point. Got it. Um, started in 1985 in a small one station department, uh, about 25 miles east of Atlanta, which was Conyers. It was a tremendous experience. Great group. There was about 25 of us, um, very, very involved in, uh, training at the state level. And, uh, and with smoke divers, it was kind of a, uh, given that you needed to go through smoke divers your first couple of years. So um, I did that right off the bat and got hooked up with those guys, traveled a lot with them uh, as an adjunct instructor for the state. Uh, we re- we uh, consolidated with our county fire department in 1990, and so I became a county employee. And uh, that was an interesting time because basically they shut us down and rehired us as county employees at and we were basically treated not by the fire department, but by the county as a new employee. So we had to wait six months to participate in retirement programs and stuff like that. So I started really getting the bug to leave. Um, we had to agree to a five-year pay freeze because we made more money than the, than the county guys did. And it was a really different environment because we went from a one-station department with four or five people on duty every day to stations with just two people on duty. And so uh, that really gave me the bug to get out of there. So I left in 92 and went to Atlanta. Um, just about made 30 years there, 29 and a half, and retired in June of, uh, of 21. And uh, all along, been involved with the Georgia Smoke Divers and taught a lot with the Georgia Fire Academy. Um, got involved with the Fire Department Instructors Conference back uh, about 20 years ago. And, uh, well, actually, probably 25 years ago as an instructor, and then 20 years now as a as a contract employee um, managing the hands-on training. And uh, done some stuff with UL, 
um, on the board with fire engineering, uh, fire apparatus and equipment, and the old fire rescue before they shut it down. So uh, written a fair amount of articles for them and done a lot of teaching around uh, the country. And, of course, we've got the, the two satellite uh, smoke diver programs, the one in Indiana there and also the one in Oklahoma and hoping to add a couple more in the next five or six years. You highlight a lot of things there. And I said I wanted to highlight a little bit of your smoke diver experience, but it sounds like there's a whole lot more to draw on and and, uh, talk about. Obviously, we can only be here for so long, but uh, 29 years in Atlanta, I imagine that was, uh, I imagine you've seen a lot. Absolutely. Uh, I got a great opportunity to be at some good locations. Uh, I made battalion chief very early. Tribute a lot of that to my prior experience with the other department and training, but uh, actually spent uh, from 2004 until 2021 as a battalion chief and got to got to serve in downtown uh, in a couple of the outlying uh, from downtown battalions. Also got to be chief of special operations for a while. So uh, um, actually worked with a a big group of folks to actually build the special operations program from more than just a, a hazmat team and rope rescue to a full collapse rescue um, trench and WMD and all that stuff, uh, getting vehicles and, and uh, putting, putting training together for a, for a big group. And it's still the command structure uh, was taken out due to budget cuts, but the, uh, the equipment's still there, and the stations that do special ops stuff are, are still there. So let's kind of kick this off. We uh, we put a post out in our, our Fire Talk uh, mentorship group just asking what kind of leadership dilemmas um, and challenges Air Force firefighters wanted to hear discussed. Uh, and we got back a couple doozies, and I, I think this first one ranks up there. And it's should a leader – have an allegiance to the interests of the organization or to the interests of their people when the two are in conflict. And an example that uh, was given um, in 2015, the the Air Force set out to revamp our enlisted performance report system. Um, And like it is in a lot of organizations, it became pretty common that firewall fives, meaning if you got anything less than the the top score in each category, that, that something was seriously wrong. And so the, the Air Force rightfully set out to fix the system where, you know, an average troop was rated a three, even fewer should receive fours, and only the best of the best should receive a five. So as a leader, do you score your good but average troops a three, knowing it could be harmful to their careers if the Air Force's systems for promotions and scoring boards don't follow suit? Where should your allegiance lie when the interests of the organization and possibly your people aren't perfectly aligned? Um, we we went through a similar um, issue in Atlanta with evaluations, and we had a transition from what what we used to call the blue sheet, which was a one page evaluation, and it was checking on you know could you do your skills and did you get to work on time and all that stuff. It was real simple, um, one pager. And 
you know, it, it, it served a purpose. And then we got very fancy and went to, a, I can't remember. I want to say it ended up being 15, 20 pages of, uh, of evaluations and documentation. And so the way I always approached it was there's no perfect evaluation system, but the ones that I've seen that are good actually have some type of competency measure where there's some type of evaluation. Um, and, and it's ongoing. It's not just a one-time deal. It's a, it may be done in 12 segments over a year, or it may be done in quarterly or whatever, but there's some type of uh, practical application. Um, ours was not so much that, but um, the key as a, as a leader with any evaluation system is, first of all, you have to understand the evaluation system and its intent and what the requirements are. If an evaluation system is vague, then the organization is in trouble. If they don't put very specific measures on there and uh, task skills, things that can actually be be visualized and, and seen that can happen, then it becomes very subjective. Um, and so I took it as a challenge. Uh, obviously, our administration and, and the city HR wanted the same thing. They wanted to see the bell curve when they ran their data that the majority of people were um, average, a small portion were below average, and then a, a, a tiny portion were above average, and then a tiny, tiny person, uh, portion were, were excellent. So I guess if that's what they wanted, uh, they made a mistake in uh, publishing the requirements for each of those categories. So, you know, as a, as a battalion chief, I looked at those categories and I felt it was my job to do everything I could to prepare and coach the guys in my battalion to the top tier, if that's what they chose, chose to do. So I spent a lot of time building a roadmap of how to get there. So if they didn't get there, it was their own fault. And at the end, I had so much documentation that if anybody said, hey, there's no way 75% of your people are, are outstanding, which was the highest thing, then I could pull out the documentation, show it to them and say, well, you know, it said you had to teach five classes on firefighter safety. And this particular person taught 15, you know, and I built a spreadsheet. Uh, I had spreadsheets for all the captains that had all the ranks at the bottom on tabs. So it was real easy. I encouraged them to document daily. And, and obviously I looked at everything we did and sort of made decisions on what we could count and what didn't count. And I was very liberal with that because there were no guidelines given. If it said you had to teach 10 safety classes, well, it didn't say it had to be a accredited 40-hour class. I mean, they could have taught a 20-minute class at the kitchen table, and it counted. But the key was to document that and check it peri- periodically to make sure that uh, it was being kept up with. So I didn't feel at any time that I was breaking any rules. Uh, but I felt like I, it was my job to teach and develop a system so that the guys could achieve the highest 
they wanted to achieve. And if they didn't, it was totally their fault um, because they either didn't document or they didn't take the time to sit out and actually accomplish, you know, those things. And rarely did I ever have anybody that that was below average. Um, and obviously the the captains are the ones that are documenting and and filling out their evaluations. But um, the specific question about allegiance, I think, is important because um, the allegiance is to the organization, but you can't not have allegiance to the people because the people are the organization. So the answer is kind of the same. Your, your, your allegiance is to both. If you're just looking at management, then the old saying of we manage uh, things, but we, we lead people. So we, we often look at the evaluation system as a management tool. So uh, I, I just recommend that people use the system to their advantage. And I'm sure it's the same in the military, is that there, there is some leeway, there's some interpretation that has to be done, but, but just follow the system and coach your people through it so that they can score the best and don't leave them hanging out. And then and then wait till uh you know the last thirty days to try to get everything to try to get everything done. Play the game the entire year and uh and the key with, with it all is documentation. Um I hate the uh online training uh mentality. I mean obviously it's good for some things and to get certain things out, but there should be something you're doing every day that can be documented for your evaluation. And, and if it said, and there was a lot of categories, but if it said you had to do five of, of 15 things, then by using the system that we created and following up on it, there was no way anybody could come back and take that outstanding away from any of our folks. Because if it said five, they had documented 15 on everything. So I looked at it as a game. Chief, not to make this question tougher for you, uh, but there's there's a whole lot of rigidity in the military, you know, it, intentionally, right? I mean, it, it's built that way so that, you know, we, we stick together in times of war, right? And and um, and so, and there's a little bit of subjectivity in our evaluations also, I think, intentionally, because there's just such a wide array of things that we could potentially do and be responsible for if you, if you made the evaluation... Um, black and white as you described in some ways it is black and white but in most ways it's not there's there's a lot of room for subjectivity because there is a wide array of different things that we are responsible for but i guess um to to ask the question different in terms of where your loyalty sits with organization with individual let's say that there's something that you know that you don't agree with and you know that your folks don't agree with but your boss wants it done. You know, how would you handle that kind of circumstance? That's, that's a pretty challenging leadership dilemma, I think, and especially now with COVID. Yeah, it's huge. Um, I've definitely been there many times. And uh, I guess the, the biggest thing is you, you have to, you have to have trust with your, with your crews, um, you know, at any level of of leadership, whether it's uh, being a senior man or, being a company officer, battalion chief, uh, company commander, division chief, 
you have to have the trust of your people so that it doesn't come down to one issue. And uh, I think if you establish that all along, your, your people know you well enough and you know them well enough that when you come in that particular situation, and like I said, I've been there, um, totally had it out in a staff meeting over policy that didn't make any sense to me or any operations people, but, you know, we're finally told this is the way it's going to be. And so you can't go out and start the conversation by saying, hey, guys, I know this is stupid, but we got to do it anyway. But you just go out and deliver it and you already have the relationship to where (laughs) they know before you even you don't have to say it because it's not even body language. It's it's just it's intuition on their Mm -hmm. part. When you come and you just deliver a message. And you go, hey, guys, uh, just need to go over something with you. Effective immediately, A, B, C, and uh, we have to do it that way. Everybody clear? Yep. There'll be a couple questions. Yep. And sometimes your silence is uh, better than, than what, you, you know, what you try to explain around. I actually had a, you know, yeah, I had a fire chief. capital. Right. And I had a, a, a fire chief who... Um, got very upset with me, um, and this was like chief of the department level, and he knew that I had credibility, that I had a rela- uh, relationship with a lot of people in the organization, and he wanted that. And so he wanted me to go out and sell one of his, uh, one of his agenda items that was, was just not going to work in our organization. And so, you know, I, I wanted him to be successful, and so I was always honest with him and, and let him know, you know, uh, uh, one of my lines was always, Chief, if you will just tell us where you want to go and let us get us there, and you stay out of the, you know, specific down the nitty-gritty details. Tell us where you want us to go and kind of let us communicate, because I didn't feel he communicated well to the, to the troops. He didn't have that. He couldn't talk street language. You know, he was an administrator type person. Um, so he got angry because I wouldn't just go out and regurgitate his message as is with enthusiasm that it was the greatest thing in the world and this is what we needed to do. And I told him flat out, I was honest with him. I said, Chief, if I do that, then I will lose the credibility that you are trying to use for me. So. Let me help you massage this whole thing and let's see if we can get to where you want to go, but not by A, B, C, D, you know, let this is, what is that old saying? Let me help, help you help yourself. <laughs> um, and, you know, I never wanted any fire chief not to be successful. I think but you used I, some of your capital right there when you're talking to the boss, because it, it almost sounded like a passive aggressive way of saying, hey, listen, oh, yeah. nobody's oh, going to was... agree with what you say. Let me use and leverage my credibility with the guys to, to make it happen for you. Right. And he was he was totally pissed, you know, uh, at me, not just, you know, saying yes, sir, and going and singing the singing the song. But uh you know, it wasn't a matter of wishing him ill will or not wanting his program to work. It was, it was again, looking out for the organization uh, and what was going to work, work for the organization. 
like that's you know certainly easier said than done but when your troops know your character right that's something i think about and you take a message to them that you know isn't going to go over well and you know you stand behind it and support whatever's coming down through the organization to me that's where the trust comes into play if they say hey chief Rhodes, you know sergeant wilson is bringing us this and asking us to implement it you know we might not see it but it is what's best and then that's where you get the buy-in you know mm-hmm. just based on your credibility and your character as a leader mm-hmm. yep and you know uh on the front end of of policy change and especially operational changes um if if the administration does the the hard work on the front end then it really shouldn't be any uh big issue to implement a lot of this stuff because it should have been developed as an organization, not as just a, an order. Um, and the peer groups that are put together to, to develop policy and stuff, especially in a fire department organization, should include um, everybody who the decision is going to affect and be massaged for quite a while. And then when that policy comes out, the the troops know that it's been worked on for a while with a group that is competent and they have to have trust in that group. Now, if we just make a admin committee and it's a who's who of who's wants to be seen, then then that doesn't work. And again, Chris, you're 100 percent right. It is so easy to say it, but it's hard, very hard to do it. Um, the two things that, that you got to have uh for for trust in any any organization relationship or our character and competence um if you don't have strong character which is your integrity your intent and all and you're not competent in in your skills and uh and in and in the military i'm sure it's same as the fire service it the the bottom up the folks who come from the bottom up and get promoted through through the ranks and have established a reputation as being good operators and stuff tend to walk into leadership roles with, with a, um, an amount of trust already. Uh, ones that transfer in or uh, maybe do a, a five, 10 year period in an admin role and then get pushed out into an operational role. They're the ones that really struggle and, uh, Sometimes they overcompensate by going authoritarian and, you know, uh, well, I'm the, I'm the boss. Look at, see these right here. That means you do what I say. Uh, and, and other times they just struggle and, and withdraw. So, uh, um, it is difficult, but you definitely have to have high character. They got to know you care about them. They got to know your intent. Um, and you have to be competent. You have to be a competent decision maker. And it doesn't mean that uh, that you have to be the guy that can force the door faster than anybody else, because that's not your job anymore. But you do need to know that they are at least selecting the right tools and tactics to to accomplish it. And they need to see you out there with them in some training. And uh, it's always good to go up. Uh, forcible entry is a great example. If you hadn't done it in a long time, you're a you're a chief or an officer. You go up and participate in the class and let them see that you're not that good at it, but let them see that you're you're out there participating and trying. You know, uh, 
we had to do rapid dress every quarter and that was always kind of an interesting thing because i could still rapid dress pretty pretty quickly from my uh, smoke diver stuff and uh um it was a big deal if you if you beat me in in rapid dress you know uh, a lot of times you you hopefully hope that everybody can beat you but uh sometimes we you know we'd we'd get some challenges and some bets and stuff going up that were pretty good i'm sure everybody listening to this can think of a, a leader that doesn't have credibility either as a result of a character issue or a competence issue. You know, it might be mm-hmm. the, the nicest, you know, right. guy in the world, but is incompetent or the most competent leader in the world, but, you know, has a questionable character and neither of them have credibility. Right. And the toughest, okay. the toughest things to, to manage, of course, are the, or the, the incompetent employee, uh, for whatever reason, uh, they hired the wrong person. They're not trainable, uh, attitude issues and all that stuff. And those are hard issues because if you don't do something about them, then it destroys the, the morale. And, and that, that, that competence level is, is where they, you have to get results, um, through your decision-making and stuff. Obviously, you're, the integrity part means that you're not out to destroy this person just because people don't like them or whatever, but you have to do whatever you can to bring them up to to being functional in the company. But if you can't, you have to pull the trigger and get them out of the system. And uh, a lot of times you can't do that as a middle manager. Um, there's too many layers, but what you do, same with the evaluation, and uh, you definitely don't set people up to fail. I don't believe in that at all. Even if they're like the worst person in the freaking company, but you have them perform the same things that everybody else performs, and you start documenting their performance. And so at the end, it may take two, three years. When it's time to pull the trigger, you turn in a notebook of things that um, are obviously not an emotional evaluation or whatever this is documented things and you show where i have tried you know 150 times to get this skill with this person and they cannot they cannot do it and so i'm recommending that they either go retrain or they get moved to another position or 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 leave the organization and then you don't always win that but you that's the only part you have control over then if something happens uh, down the road with that person's competency level, somebody gets hurt, whatever, you're not going to be part of the witch hunt and the blame game because they know that you've got smoking guns sitting there in a notebook that you've already turned in a couple of times, uh, to them asking for action to be taken. And, uh, I've seen it both ways. I've seen it work and people be removed. Um, I've seen it work where people had to go back through training and, and that worked. And I've seen it to where, Everybody stuck their head in the sand and, and it festered for, for years until something happened, you know. Well, that was a good one, Chris. That was a good question. We went down a couple of rabbit holes there. Common theme there was uh, documentation. I picked that up, definitely. Um, I got another one for you, Chief. This one uh, I think a lot of people would be interested in, myself included, and it's something you think about a lot in the Air Force as a firefighter, so... You know, as as we all know, the DOD fire service, it's a much lower call volume than our civilian counterparts on average. Um, 
Of course, we respond to emergencies, and they're no less significant than than anything that you're going to encounter outside the fence. But we it, it it does come at a much lower volume, which results in us being a little bit less experienced. And and there's a far fewer seasoned senior officers, uh, seasoned fire officers, seasoned firefighters, uh, for that matter. And you know, our demographic we have a a much younger demographic too, a lot of young guys right out of high school, gals as well. Um, so my question is, how do we build a senior firefighter culture in an organization that doesn't have a much of a call volume? Um, common problem throughout the fire service because there, um, there are a lot of departments out there that, uh, you know, run 90, 95% EMS is it. And they don't get the fire or the special ops type type calls and stuff if they're not in an urban or suburban um, area. And of course, with the with the taking on of the EMS structure and stuff, then then most people are pretty decent at that because that's what they that's what they end up doing. Um, it's tough to build when you're not getting the the experience. So the only thing you can do is, uh, and, and I heard this from an old, um, I can't remember his name, but it was actually an old Air Force officer. And he said, there's only two things worth doing uh, in, your, in your profession as a uh, military person or as a public safety person, and that's preparing for an incident or responding to an incident. And if you focus on those two things, preparing is huge because it's a wide, it's everything from equipment readiness to training to policy. So that one's huge, and that takes up a lot of time. So in that preparing for an emergency, you have to make training as realistic as it can possibly be. And uh, obviously, we think we do that through our, our smoke diver program, because when you make it realistic, there are consequences to to bad decisions and you learn lessons um nobody's set up to fail but being realistic is usually tougher than just uh doing walkthroughs and tabletops and things like that so you have to set up training that is uh that is so realistic that uh that it can build a level of of experience and uh, i'm a huge proponent of what i call training for adaptability and that's where you create scenarios that don't have, uh, you know, okay, this is what you do, one, two, three. The person in charge of, of the crew has to think and make decisions along the way. There may be four or five ways to a good solution, and you let them make those decisions, and, and they have to adapt. Uh, you don't want to throw in so many kinks that they can't win the scenario because that's, that's damaging, too. But you develop winnable scenarios that require the firefighter to think. And, and, and when you do that, they start to be able to answer the why we are doing this. Why do we use this particular piece of equipment versus this other one that seems to be easier and has worked nine out of ten times? Well, because we didn't have this happen in that scenario. And if this had have happened... You know, maybe we set up a scenario where we know it's going to overwhelm a booster line or a water can or whatever so that 
you say, okay, nine times out of 10, it worked, but here's why it worked. It didn't work because it was a booster line or a water can. It worked because the circumstances weren't what they could be. And, and we're asking you to, to think on the front end. And, uh, and obviously there's a balance. There's policy to take care of most operational things, but you don't want to create robots that only pull this line every time. They got to be, they have to be put in training scenarios that force them to make decisions that learn the lessons that experience uh, that, that real calls teach you. Roger that, Chief. Yeah, training, really. That's it. That's the only thing you can do. Yeah. And you might be able to get creative and, right. uh, like I know in the in the EMS world, like your your uh, your military uh, medics, like I think they've combined all the schools now to where uh, they all sure. do their their um, I think advanced corpsmen probably go to something different. Right. I think I think the, the Navy and the Air Force may be together i'm not sure about that okay so one of the things that they do when they're in their training is uh, they send them out to ride with fire departments uh-huh. and to send them to emergency rooms so yeah. it um we could do that for uh, firefighters too um at atlanta hosted uh, it was a private fire department from the middle east but we hosted like 30 guys and they just came over for like two months and they worked 24-48 with us on the rigs, and they were allowed to have gear, and they were allowed to participate. So, um, you know, obviously you can't say just you could go to your local department because the local department around a base may be as slow as, as the base, depending on where it is. But you could mm-hmm. designate, uh, you know, some of the urban, larger urban departments and create some type of program where they go and actually get to shadow, kind of a little more than shadow, but. Um, that helps too. Cause even if you're not, if you're not the person physically doing the work, if you're right there at it and see how the decisions were made, that increases your experience too. Yeah. Live vicariously. And they, mm-hmm. they have that in the air force. Uh, it's called C stars and it's for four ends, which are, uh, medical technicians, uh, emergency medical technicians, paramedics. Um, mm-hmm. and they go to places like Baltimore, um, mm-hmm think uh, maybe phoenix uh i don't know about detroit maybe chicago some of some of the bigger cities and they do ride alongs with the ambulance and they get some pretty incredible experience Absolutely. Um, another point I, I think it's worth mentioning is as a lead to tie this back to leadership and dilemma as a leader kind of being inexperienced i think it's important to be transparent um so we have what's called, we have a rookie development program, a rookie book, you know, mm-hmm. Hey, welcome to the department. Here's your book, knock out, you know, modules one through six and the 200 and plus tasks associated with that. And of course somebody needs to teach them that stuff. And, but right. if you don't have the experience, um, you know, who am I to teach you? Right. And so I think it's important then let's say if you're a fire officer, five years of experience and you're given this task to train this rookie firefighter on something that maybe you haven't done or experienced in the real world, it's, it's important to be transparent. Like, listen, I haven't done this before. I did it in training just like you did, and I've done a handful of training evolutions um, throughout my career. So together, we're going to learn about this. I'm going to tell you a few things that maybe I know I've picked up, I've learned from other folks, uh, and I've, li- I've uh, learned vicariously through others. And we're going to learn together. And I think that's an important point as a leader. I don't know what you think about that. 
Absolutely. And uh, even though you're, as the company officer, responsible for the training, um, you need to know what resources you have around you. And um, if, if you're not good at, at uh, tying knots or whatever it is that you're working on, you need to know who is and bring them in. You know, um, it may be uh, a brand new firefighter that's come in from, you know, somewhere where he was on a technical rescue team. And you've already known that this dude is like the top, top tier at doing that subject. Then do just like the special ops team, defer to expertise, bring that person in. And both of you take a class from him. Obviously, he's the only one that's got to get signed off in his book. But uh, um, don't be afraid to bring in outside uh, instructors. And, uh, a lot of time there's a lot of a network and even the local department, if a lot, I know you guys partner up with, with the local departments around the, the bases and stuff is to tap the instructors from, from there too, and share, share resources. So definitely look for outside influences to come in and, and, and help break that, that chain up. But the transparency part, uh, one of the strategies to build trust is vulnerability. And if you, if you're not just the cocky, I know everything. Do as I do as I say, not as I do. Guy, and you and you show a little vulnerability, then guys relate to you a lot better. Um, Absolutely. I got put in uh, a, a position that I really knew nothing about for a year. Um, it was called community risk uh, management, or whatever. It was. It was basically all the fire prevention. Uh, stuff the community affairs the cert team inspections plan reviews and arson investigation i didn't know anything about that and the first day i pulled everybody together and i told them that i said i got assigned here i'm not exactly sure why and i i need your help um i can manage things pretty well and i will get you what you need but i am going to have to have your help in advising me on stuff and everybody laughed you know yeah, I, I thought it was too. a joke but i was <laughs> like dude i'm lost as last year's easter egg uh in here and and you know they taught me a lot of stuff i learned a lot of stuff and we got a lot of things done um mm-hmm. tremendous amount of things done and uh even though it wasn't my favorite assignment i left there with very good terms with all the people and they always were asking when I'm coming back. And I was like, I'm hoping, mm-hmm. I'm hoping never, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, t- I'm t- glad back you- to your character point. <laughs> right. Well, something I think about is I don't care if you're on the, the busiest firefighting apparatus in the country or, you know, the slowest apparatus in the entire DOD, your responsibility for competence for competency as a leader is the exact same. Right. So what do you do? I mean, obviously you can't create the calls, but you can build that competency through training. I think about the, to your point, chief, seeing firefighters leave one week of the DOD firefighter rescue survival course or one week of smoke diver and just the, the level of competence, you know, that they leave that week with, or Mm -hmm. to your point earlier, find a senior person outside of your organization. You know, if you don't have somebody that's an expert at something at engine work in your fire department, reach out to Whit Dotson, who was on a, an earlier episode that we can link to in the notes. Or mm-hmm. if you're interested in, you know, rescue and survival, reach out to 
Travis Bender, any of those people, you know, are, you know, they're posting stuff um, on social media. They would, I know, be more than willing to take a phone call to talk through stuff. You right. Know, find yeah, there's some somewhere. There's some personal responsibility for sure. If you're not getting what you what you need, you can't totally rely on your organization or your your officers to provide it. And you know, you face it, we get good officers, we get bad officers. Everybody gets moved around and 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 put in different uh, environments. So if you get with a good officer, enjoy that time with them and learn as much as you can. But don't get stuck within your own. Uh, organization there's a term i I use in in my leadership class that is uh uh, entropy and this thermodynamics law of of energy and it's the the law and i'm not a scientist so if you are a scientist and you're listening he goes you got it wrong uh yeah go ahead not intending yeah (laughs) so 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 basically the way i interpret it is in any closed system there's amount of energy and that energy at some point sort of equalizes out and becomes neutral. And so when you look at it as an organization, if you stay a closed company or a closed unit or a closed organization, you become stale and there's energy there, but the energy can't work because it doesn't have any outside influences to like re-energize it and make the make the movement happen. So I think as an individual, you have a personal responsibility if you want to be good at this stuff to get outside of your little area. Um, if you're not getting a hundred percent of what you need, then you have to go out and, and get it. And uh, uh, that's through conf- maybe conferences. There's so many conferences. Now there's, con- there's a con- there's four conferences a day. Uh, you know, they're little, they could be 30 people or 500. And then you got the big ones like FDIC and stuff, but that's not the only place to go. Um, but seek people out, you know, um, people are sometimes afraid to call somebody like they see, they see a thing like this, or they read an article and those people that write those articles are some mythical creatures that are, you know, and and really, they're all just regular folks that took the time to share some knowledge. And uh, um, uh, when I read John, the story of John Boyd, um, the the famous Air Force guy, there, I based a lot of our smoke diver instructor development off of his decision making stuff. Obviously, the OODA loop and and all that. But uh, um, I'm reading the book, and in the book, it says one of his right hand. Uh, guys, one of his uh, accolades was was a guy named Chet Richards who lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's where I'm working. So, like, dude, I got on Google and I found this dude and called him up and got his cell number and called him up and and we still talk to this day. That's been I don't know 15 plus plus years ago, and uh, uh, he was an Air Force Colonel too, and they were they were an instrumental. They worked at the Pentagon designing uh, like the A10. Um, and I always get them wrong, but the old, the old uh, Tomcat jets, the the first versions with the with the twin fins F-14. on the back, yeah, they were involved in all of that. And and you know, Boyd um, was a super well known pilot that taught at Nellis, and uh, they give him credit for being the guy that actually invented the Top Gun maneuver. I'll slam on brakes and he'll fly right by. And so this guy's like a, a super well known 
guy that's produced tons of decision making stuff and all. And uh, ironically, uh, uh, if you if you read the book, I highly recommend it. Um, a lot of his stuff was rejected by the Air Force, and the Marines picked it up. <laughs> He's like the only Air Force dude that has his uniform in the Marine Museum. Well, <laughs> so uh, you know the old you're, you're not a prophet in your homeland or or, or whatever, but uh, um, don't be afraid to read an article and try to get in touch with the author and just pick their brain and uh, um, not not because of a celebrity. Uh, you want you want to know them because they're somebody who writes a lot of articles or whatever, but um, it's just like that rookie coming to the station and showing interest. If you show interest, you get more given back to you. If you just sit in the corner and stay on your phone and watch TV, then people lose interest in you. Um, they try, but the more the more you show you're interested, the more people are going to come to you because the folks like that get recharged by those folks coming to them and asking them and helping them. Um, um, that's uh, Scott Millsap, who was the smoke daddy before before me and has passed away years ago. But we'd always say, man, he is the ultimate motivator. And we'd be like, Scott, where do you get your motivation from? Because you motivate us. And he said, from you. So that's huge. Awesome. Here's one for you, Chief. All right. What advice do you have for establishing operational standards in an organization? And here's here's an example. It's kind of the first thing that comes to mind is, is there value in formalizing how engine companies should operate? You know, is it, should the organization establish, you know, best practices between fog and smoothbore, if and when to use transitional attack, hose loads, that kind of stuff? Or in your opinion, is it more valuable to decentralize those types of decisions? Um, probably a little combination of each. I think what you do is you take your typical response, and uh, I'm not sure what it is for you guys, but for for uh, for like an urban fire department, a typical response is really uh, you know one two story structure fire, maybe an apartment fire, something like that. So those are your bread and butter operations that you do 90% of stuff. So I think it's good that you got uh, first engine does this, second engine does that, uh, seat riding positions so that you, you have a baseline standard of operations. So it's not total chaos. You know what to expect. You know, this guy's going to have this tool and so forth. So that is that side of it is golden. But understand that you can't create that for everything you're going to face. So back to training, you have to create training that forces you to make decisions. And so you modify that assignment, those basic guidelines, you modify it as needed for the incident. Just like we say, we start out with the first unit's officer being in command and then command grows with the with the uh, incident. So, you know, the, the three or four more units get there and then the battalion chief gets there and, and they transfer command and then maybe they call another chief and you expand it out. Same with your tactics. You know, you're, you know, you're going in geared towards your typical risk, but when you pull up on that, Whoa, this is not typical. And for you and for you guys, typical may 
maybe uh, you know a plane crash or or whatever even if it doesn't happen a lot that is what you're there for in, in certain things I'm, i know you do structural too so if your normal thing is structural that you do the most of develop something for that and then have another set of stuff for your typical crash scenario knowing that there really is no <laughs> typical but at least you have and, and it just needs it doesn't need to be so detailed that it bogs you down from making decisions again you don't want a robot but you know you're going to have to have a water supply you know you're going to have to have foam or whatever it is for that incident so go ahead and pre-assign that type of stuff and then let the other stuff come with with what's actually happen, happening let the circumstances dictate uh you know the rest of it yeah you got to build autonomy within the within the construct uh, there is uh, i don't know how familiar you guys are, are with uh, Aaron Fields he I heard I heard him speak. Or I went to one of his uh, seminars one time, and one thing he said is in Seattle they have like playbooks, and I, I, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but they'll get on scene and let's say it's a you know two story residential structure fire, play alpha, you know, go, mm-hmm. and and all the all the firefighters know exactly what to do. He mentioned that anytime you hear something on the radio beyond a command statement or something like that you knew that an audible was being called. You knew that there was an mm-hmm. adjustment to the play. Um, and so, yeah, autonomy was built into that. Everybody knew that you could call an audible. It, only when the situation dictated that you needed to call that audible. So, Yep. So, yeah, I guess I don't, I don't know if we skirted around. There's really no yes or no answer for that. But it's there is good to it, but I think you can take it too far. Um, um, there, there was a big push and it was a great class, the crew resource management stuff, which I'm sure air force is, is, is big into in the aviation. Um, but I think there's some discrepancy in an emergency scene and, and preparing an, an aircraft for takeoff or, or what have you. So it's complex to fly an aircraft and there's a checklist. And every person on that crew has responsibility and they go through certain pieces of that checklist. And that is awesome. But that's not applicable in an emergency situation of a, of a fire that's dynamic, a dynamic situation. Now, I know it works on the aircraft. You know, if this light's flashing, you flip page 240. It's got guidelines. There's all these things to do for this mechanical device. So the the concept is good, but we can only do that on the front end by checking the apparatus and making sure it's ready and all that because um, every scene we go to is going to have its own dynamic and ever-changing circumstances. And there's just not a book for every single thing that you can refer to. And... uh where we saw this a lot was in safety officer. You know, that was a big thing. I, I can't remember 15, 20 years ago, we're going to establish safety officer. There's a safety officer checklist. And so safety officer gets on the scene, they pull out their clipboard, they got their vest on and they start walking around. There's a five story apartment complex with 10 units on fire and people hanging out the window. 
and they are going by the checklist, chalk blocks on each apparatus check, you know, uh, all this stuff. And they're totally disconnected from the biggest hazard. The biggest hazard is our people are in the hot zone of this incident. You need to focus your attention to that. If, if we're not putting our chalk blocks down and don't have our hoods pulled up and stuff like, man, that's like, that's got to be taken care of on the front end. You know, obviously there's times where you got to stop or whatever, but that is not the big hazard right now. And, uh, sometimes that, that crew resource management message gets missed and then it gets, it gets interpreted as everything can be a checklist. And when you're operating in that super dynamic, uh, environment, then it it can't. And it's not that the checklist is bad because if you totally like lose your mind, it's good to have that, that you can kind of scan down and like, oh, I need to be looking at this. Just like a tactical worksheet is for a, for an incident commander or, or whatever. Um, so you need those things, but I don't think that you can, that you can checklist your way out of, of dynamic uh, firegrounds situations. On a deployment a couple of years ago, I, I came across a checklist for a dumpster fire. And that just yeah. just struck me yeah. as, and no offense to you know whoever created that checklist, right, right, right. Somebody, is yeah, listening because trying to do the right thing. But. Well, and it, it but, could be a great tool in training. Uh, uh, if you have that, all right, we're going to do some some uh, training on dumpster fires today, and I create this checklist so that I don't miss anything. But the purpose is that checklist is supposed to end up in 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 uh, muscle memory at some some point, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I mean, you could take that. There's a difference in a dumpster fire behind uh, um, Wendy's than there is Home Depot, mm-hmm. right? I mean, a dumpster fire is not a dumpster fire. It it, it could be a hazmat situation or whatever. But uh, but yeah, people people take it uh take it too far. One of the things I saw in a technical rescue which I actually thought was fine, but the purest technical rescue folks were going nuts. And I don't know if you guys saw it or not, but like uh, uh, I was a big proponent of systems, rigged systems already in the bag. Um, and a lot of people were like, no, no, because what if right, you have right. it? Well, what if, what if, what if? Nine times out of 10, this system is what we're going to use and what we're going to need. Why do I need you thinking about how to build this system? Now, you need to know that it's right or whatever, but that's something you check out in the morning. And I don't know if you guys saw it, but uh, a lot of guys were taking tarps and they were laying these systems out and painting uh, the system on the tarp so that like anybody could walk up and build a system. You know, if you wanted a three to one, they had a three to one tarp. And if you laid a pulley where it said pulley and you did your rope and I'm like, man, if nothing else for training, that is golden. Mm-hmm. That is golden because it's a visual. Sure, uh, you can do it. Uh, yeah, less to think about. Yeah, people building uh, in the heat of the moment. People building wood uh, shoring models, like and you know, instead of spending all the money going out yeah. and shoring up, get little hobby wood and split it and build. You know, build shores as a as a as a drill. Because you're learning that you're learning the the technique. Chief, that kind of goes back to your point about building training for thinking firefighters and it it feels like the best sops 
are written the same way, you know, in a, in a way that keeps everybody on the same page, but they're written for thinking firefighters. Do you agree with that? Yes. And I get asked all the time, I'll be teaching fire behavior, uh, doing some of the UL stuff or whatever. And I get the question, you know, so what is the right way to put out a fire? <laughs> can't, can't answer that. I, you show me the fire and I'll tell you what I would do, but I, there is no right way. Um, there are components that have to be there. You got to have a water supply. You need protective clothing. You, you need uh, uh, some way to deliver the water. Um, but other than those basic things, then you have to see it and, and know what to do versus just saying this is the way. And, and it depends on staffing. It depends on uh, so, many outside, so many outside factors. You know, where, where's the fire at? And what resources do I have right now? Because if I only have me, then it's a different tactic. If I have 12 people, it's a totally different tactic. So there is no one, one way. Mm-hmm. And the SOPs are usually SOGs. Some things are, are, are P's and some are G's. And the G's, you know, people are like, well, I don't, what do you want me to do? I don't understand. Well, it's a guy. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, here's a starting point. Cover these bases and then adapt to whatever um, else is thrown at you. Well, Chief, we got one more for you. And, right. and, and it's something that I thought of because I wanted to draw on, you know, some of your experience with smoke divers. It's something that uh, that I'm, I'm personally interested in just based on what I've heard about it. And I've, I only know what I've heard about it, right? So I haven't been through it myself. I don't know what goes on there. But I, from what I understand, you know, students are routinely pushed to their physical and mental limits, um, you know, intentionally, right, to to prepare their minds and, and their bodies, right, for that um, high-risk, low-frequency circumstance where their heart rate's elevated, they don't have much time to think things through. So they're, you know, consistently pushed their mental and physical limits. So my question is, how do you, how do you lead in, in circumstances like that? So when things aren't necessarily that great when let's see you you've been on scene on a drawn out emergency for a long time or maybe the the fire station's being renovated and the living conditions are poor or or the trucks um aren't aren't in the best condition and there's not much money um how as a leader do you do you lead through through those kind of circumstances and that's kind of a broad question but yeah there's probably two two separate questions there the 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 biggest thing as a as a leader in those um high intensity moments where you may be trapped or cut off or um things like that is um you go back to the term situational awareness well i don't think you can teach quote situational awareness because your situational awareness is what it is right then so the best thing you can do is be very diverse in your training and your experience ahead of time so that that makes your situational awareness better that's what smoke divers does is we're putting you in situations to build mental models to let you feel uh the emotions um the physical stressors and all that uh so and and then force you to make decisions in that environment so uh, i always use the example 
if you want a bigger bicep, you have to exercise that bicep to failure so that it grows and you just keep repeating that, you know, you're, that's, that's the way you build uh, muscle mass and, or endurance. If you're going to build cardio, you don't start out running a hundred miles or, or running six minute miles or five minute miles or whatever, but you start somewhere and you build up. And so if you haven't prepared yourself for that situation, when you get in it, you're going to suck. And the best thing for you to do at that moment, if you have a crew with you, is use the special ops tactic of defer to the person who is keeping their crap together and and is good. Um, no harm in that. But um, And we, we even talk about that, and we create some things to to show you how that works, how, how quickly you can be, you can be the top guy on this call and not really be stressed at all because you're familiar in the next call, you're like almost a liability. And it happens to everybody because we can't be great at every single, single thing. So, um, if you find yourself in that situation, usually your decision-making is diminished because your heart rate is just pounding. Um, without going into tons of detail, one of the best things you can do is just take a deep breath, hold it, grunt, act like you're trying to use the bathroom and let your, that'll drop your heart rate 10, 20 beats or whatever. And you can kind of regain some, some neurological function. Uh, but other than that, defer, defer to, to somebody else. And the biggest thing is make a decision. Don't just sit there and not make a decision. You know, if you're going to bust, if you're going to take the time to tear out a wall, tear it, start tearing out the wall. Um, you know, don't just sit there and wait. Uh, I've seen it so many times in training is, uh, you tell some, you, you tangle somebody up and you drill into them to call writ. Right. So, when they call writ, they quit working to get out. They stop. And it's like, no, 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 no. You don't want them to come get you. You've called them as a safety net. You keep working to get yourself out, you know, right now. The other issues of um, crappy living conditions, uh, bad equipment, uh, definitely lived all of those. Uh, def- moved, moved my. Uh, bump to the other side of the room to keep from water dripping in my face uh, at night, um, mold, missing ceiling tiles, leaning buildings, uh, had it all. And so um, if you, it's kind of like the evaluation system. If you don't have any control over being able to physically get it fixed, then you have to play the organizational game. I mean, take a lot of pictures, write a lot of reports, and send them up through the chain of command. And then um, some things that I did, uh, I'm not sure you could do in the Air Force, but just kind of keep it as a strategy is I invited a lot of important people to meet me there, council people, um, generals, officers, whatever it may be. Hey like you to come come uh have lunch with us you know or or, or dinner or or come see our new 
uh, saw we got. Oh, okay. And when they get there, you don't have to say anything. They walk in and they're like, holy crap, this is where y'all live? Oh, yeah, let me, yeah, let me show you around. And show them around. You're not doing anything wrong. Show them around. Let them see what it is. And a lot of times, you know, the right person would get over there and go back to City Hall or the business group or whatever it was that came over. And then they would call and say, they may not say anything to you. They'll, they'll make a call and say, man, chief, what in the world is going on at station so-and-so? It's like there's mold and da-da-da. I can't believe the guys are living in that. Then you'll get a call. Hey, uh, have you guys filled out repair requests on so-and-so, so-and-so? And, man, there's none better than old Cap. Uh, he's a chief now, uh, Chief Whidbey in Atlanta. And I know Chris, Chris knows him, is the documentation king. They call him and say, stop turning in repair request. We know it's broke. And he goes, okay. And then the next week he turns in another one <laughs> because he knows how it goes. And what's going to happen is eventually something is going to happen and they're going to try to put it back on him not doing his job. And he's going to say, I turned in a repair request 274 times in the last two years on this door. It finally fell and hit somebody in the head and I'm not taking the rap for it. So uh, you can't always win, but uh, Mm -hmm. some of the things that uh, we, we were able to get organizations to adopt stations and and spend some money on the station let us do a little work you know uh buy some creature comfort items and all but uh um that's a tough position to be in when you you don't hold the strings to actually make it happen and so obviously you you have to live in the misery with everybody with everybody else but don't ever give up as soon as you give up and stop turning in those requests and those repair forms, something is going to happen and you're going to take the fall for it. Right. Well, yeah, I, I want to mention that we, uh, we live pretty damn well in the Department of Defense and Air Force. I'm sure. Nice trucks, nice facilities, right? Uh, the Department of Defense gets plenty of money, so I'd like to definitely uh, mention that. <laughs> we don't necessarily have that problem. It was an example that I used, but uh, fantastic advice nonetheless. Well, stateside, right? I think of stateside, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, deployment you know. contingency environment. That's you know, that's a whole other ball game. Which but you expect it. Their, yeah, sure. Well, they have their money too, but it it's a temporary. In, in some cases, that's you know the way that it's justified. Like I'm not sure how long we're going to be here, right? So why invest in these hardened facilities or whatever nice vehicles if we're going to you know be gone in 3 years so yeah you accept it mentally kind of mm-hmm. and you're only there for 6 months too you know most of the time right something i pulled from actually our air force professional military education talks about this idea of a hardiness of spirit spirit you know having a hardiness of spirit despite inconvenience or adversity mhm you know, whether that's a stressful incident or stressful living conditions, it, it feels like those are the times where your your level of confidence as a leader, your character as a leader really come out. Mm-hmm. And if you are you are confident and you are doing the right thing, and you couple that with the hardiness of spirit, you know, where you're you're standing before your guys and hey, it is what it is, but you know, we're making the best of it kind of mentality. Right. Yeah, you can't blow smoke, but you uh you know, you just have to be sincere and yeah. 
It's out of and our control, Jim. It is out of our control. And uh, that was always, I probably said it a million times, is, look, there's so many problems in the organization, they're overwhelming. So only just focus on your walls, you know, what's inside your walls and your crew. If you can make that environment awesome, then you've done your part to make the organization awesome, you know, mm-hmm. and it's hard because you care, you care. Uh, the worst, the worst thing I ever heard one of our, our people say one time was you have to not care here to survive. And it's like the people who cared the most got treated the worst um, because they were a thorn in everybody's side, I guess, you know? And so that, you know, that that's painful if you hear that. So if they know you care, you live in the misery with them and there's things you can do. Um, you know, I always use example. If you have high morale through the relationships, through the training, through the competence, through the things that you do as a, as a team, then a lot of the facility issues will be corrected internally. Um, even if you pay for it out of your pocket, I mean, it's just, it's, it's not that it's right or it should be done. It just happens. Um, you know, somebody, uh, brings in some stuff and you, and you start working and you just make it better. You, you know, it may not be perfect, but you make it better. Um, a little tougher with equipment. Um, unless you know somebody, you have somebody that's competent on making repairs, but obviously like your, your fire apparatus or something, there's only so much you can do, uh, without, without causing a lot of other issues in in the organization. You're not going to drop the transmission and stuff like that, but you might, you might be able to go, go pick up a, a blinker lens that's broke or, uh, adjust some hinges on the door or, or, or something like that. But, um, you know, it's it's one of those weird things. It's like some of the nastiest dumps uh, of, of facilities were some of the best stations, uh, crew crew wise. Mm. You know, it's like they're old and and they're patched together, but they're they're running a lot of calls and there's good good camaraderie and they kind of like it. You know, it's like an old right, stinky right. blanket or an old stinky dog. You know, you yeah, buy your point of pride for him. Yeah, you buy your dog a new mat, and he goes back to the old stinky one. You know, like you don't want to be in the new station because then you got to really do a lot of work keeping that thing clean and stuff. And it's just like, you know, let's just live in this in this and dump. Yeah. yeah, and you can yeah, you can ha- get you can yeah you can get the scars from it and mm-hmm. have to get you have to get the shots and stuff, <laughs> the tetanus shots and all that. <laughs> Well, Chief, uh, that's a good place to end it. That's all we got for you today. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap everything up? Um, just appreciate everybody that serves and uh, and you guys that obviously are deployed. If you're watching this, thank you for what you do. And uh, all the branches of the service always had tremendous respect. And uh, um, you guys keep training and keep pushing forward. All right, Chief. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more articles and episodes just like this regularly posted on our website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. We're on Instagram at the Fire Dog Podcast, and we're on LinkedIn at the Fire Dog Podcast. That is the Fire DAWG Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and follow to stay plugged into every new episode. And please share this episode and podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media right there at the Firehouse. This is Matt Wilson and Chris Boykley with guest chief david rhodes 
Until next time, stay safe.